Well, today is a conclusion of our journey through the Gospel of John. We began back in January with John chapter 1, where we saw the word say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've journeyed through John and what we have seen. The one aim that we've had in this series, my my one prayer and heart's desire as we've journeyed through John has been that we would encounter Jesus. That we would see his glory with our eyes of faith that the eyes of our hearts would just be in awe of who Jesus is. And we have seen throughout this whole Gospel of John just how absolutely remarkable and his unsurpassed greatness. We, we have seen the purpose of John, which we'll look at today, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is why God inspired John to write this gospel, is that we would see the glory of Jesus, that we would crave him, and that we would repent of our sins and trust in Jesus and have life in Christ. And he's all about bringing his restoration, his renewal in our lives lives, and creating a sense of awe in us of who Jesus is. So before we dig into John 21 and conclude this series, I want to give you brief context in case you weren't here a few weeks ago when we looked at John 13. In John 13, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he spent the evening with his closest friends, his disciples, and he told them that he was going away. He told them that where he was going, that they could not follow him. Now, he's talking about the cross. He was about to go die and take on God's holy wrath, and that was only what Jesus could do. No one else could go to the cross and endure God's wrath and save all of those who would trust in Jesus. So they could not follow him to the cross, but Peter, of course, didn't didn't understand that, at least not yet. So in John 13... Verses 36 through 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so Peter was very bold in that upper room that Jesus, I'll die for you. But then later that evening, we know, we saw in John 18 when Jesus is arrested, he's in the courtyard and and undergoing his trial, and Peter is outside being warmed by a charcoal fire, and he three times denies even knowing Jesus. He says, I don't know him. Why are you asking me? Like, he was so afraid of getting in trouble that he denies even knowing Jesus. Now, if you read in the, in the parallel story in Matthew 26, the other 
gospel, what you see is Peter actually says that he was cursing and swearing. I don't know Jesus. So, like, you just picture him, like, dropping F-bombs. and No, I don't know him. Like, he's cursing. He's swearing. Like, no, I have never met Jesus. I don't know him. This is, this is the guy that earlier that evening said that he would die for Jesus. And then in Luke, another gospel, chapter 22, describes, again, the same story, but it gives one more detail. Luke 22 tells us that right when Peter denied Jesus the third time, and then the rooster crows, it says Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you even begin to imagine how Peter felt? The king of glory, who was about to die for the sins of the world, who had loved Peter, and Peter denies even knowing Jesus out of fear. And it says when Jesus turned and looked at him, he went and wept bitterly. And so if you don't know the rest of the story, you will think that Peter is a failure, that Peter's washed up, that God could never use him again in the kingdom. The reality is every one of us knows what it feels like to deny Jesus. You've done it too. All of us know what it feels like to fail. Because I doubt there's anyone in here that could tell me that they have never experienced failure in their life. And I don't know how your heart is today if, if you're feeling the weight or the shame or the guilt over what you've done or who you've been or seasons in your life where you did not live up to who you know you wanted to be and you felt that you have failed Jesus just like Peter. Maybe you have tasted those bitter tears the way Peter did. But what I can tell you on the authority of God's word is that God restores his people after failure. This was not the end of Peter's story, and your failure is not the end of your story either. He was not done with Peter, and he's not done with you. But as we jump into John 21, I do want to ask you a question, and I want you to Ponder this seriously and don't, don't answer too quickly. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write down your answer. If Jesus would appear to you physically the way he appeared to these men, and Jesus looked at you today, what do you think Jesus would say to you? If you were looking at him right in the eye and you could feel that he was looking right through you because, well, he can because he's Jesus. What would Jesus say to you? Write that down. Ponder. God, as, as we 
approach your word this morning, we do so with hearts that have a reverence for your word. We want to submit ourselves to your word. We are a people of your word. And we need to feed our souls from it. And your word is a final authority. It is inspired and inerrant. It's infallible. And it is our authority. And so we yearn to just be under your word. And be shaped by it. Mastered by it. Fed by it. Sustained by it. Sent out to spread it so that others can know you because in your word we know you. And so I pray that today that you would speak to us, that your spirit would illuminate, that he would open our eyes as we read your word and that we would leave this place changed with our affections so deeply stirred for you, Jesus, where we can walk in confidence in our calling and not with the chains of shame or guilt and faith. And so we ask for your glory in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's jump into John 21 as we wrap up this chapter, this book, and as well as this series. John 21, just the first few verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this is the third time in the Gospel of John that resurrected Jesus has appeared to his disciples. And he appears to them here on this third time by this Sea of Galilee. Now, it's called Tiberias. It's the same sea. It's just a different name. And so he's there on this Sea of Galilee, where you may remember, if you review, if you think back to the original calling, like in Matthew chapter 4, it describes how Jesus called these same men when they were fishing and in the Sea of Galilee. And so here we are again, three years later, resurrected Jesus. These disciples are again fishing, and there's Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We've come full circle where he first called them and said, follow me. Here we are now with Jesus, full glory, resurrected, is at the shore of the sea. And so these six disciples, along with Peter, so these seven, had already heard from Jesus to go to Galilee. And so they did. And so they're waiting for Jesus, waiting for further instructions. They've seen Jesus resurrected, but there's still a degree of confusion, of uncertainty, of, well, now what happens next? And so they're hanging out, waiting in Galilee, and they're like, well, now what do we do? Well, they do what they know best, which is fishing. So they get in their boat, and they go fishing at night. Now, the reason why is you would go fishing at night, catch the fish. The next morning, you go to the market, and you sell your catch. And so they're like, well, we're waiting for Jesus. This degree of unknown, of uncertainty, they go fishing. 
I've heard this preached that this was disobedience or forsaking Jesus. I don't know. The text doesn't say that. And so I don't want to read into what the Bible reveals and have conjecture. I, 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 but I, when I read this, I don't see a disobedience or a forsaking Jesus. I do see uncertainty, and I do see them doing what they know best. But what's so beautiful is that Jesus enters into their uncertainty and their unknown. And they're just trusting Jesus. They go to Galilee, and then Jesus encounters them right there. And let's keep reading verse 4. Just as the day was breaking. So picture the ocean, you know, Sea of Galilee, and the sun is just coming up over the horizon. It's probably just gorgeous. And Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. That's so Peter. Act first, think second. The other disciples came in the boat. Like, they're just like, well, Peter's gone, but we still got to get the boat to shore. So, like, he, like, ditched them. But they, they, they says that they, that they, get the boat to shore, drying the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on dry land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of them dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, as so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there you have resurrected Jesus. And he's calling out to these disciples that are fishing, and, and they cast their nets and have this miraculous catch of fish when caught nothing all night. Now, this might sound familiar to you, because it is familiar. Luke chapter 5, which describes the original calling of the disciples, was the exact same thing. They were fishing. They couldn't catch any fish. Jesus says, throw your nets out, and they're like, dude, we've been fishing all night. Like, we're professional fishermen. We know what's up. But they do it anyway. And, of course, there's a miraculous catch of fish. And so Jesus is recreating their original calling that you see from Matthew 4 and Luke 5. You see now here in John 21 with this reinstatement, this reaffirming, this restoration, this renewal of Peter is the exact same circumstances. Think about it. When, when Peter knows that it's Jesus, what does he say? It is the Lord. 
and he jumps in the water and he goes to the shore and then he finds Jesus there with a charcoal fire. Remember that point. It's a significant detail. Another detail is this says this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to them and he has eyewitnesses. Why is that significant? Well, in the Old Testament, the law revealed you have to have two or three witnesses to establish the truth. Who is Jesus? He is the truth. And there are three eyewitness accounts, three specific times that Jesus is now being revealed. Like, this is not by accident. There is so much, if you will read the details and not speed read the Bible, don't do that. Read it slow. And if you'll read it from cover to cover over time, you'll begin to notice these connections. And you will see, oh, there's a reason why John says three times. Because Jesus is a fulfillment of all the law. And even with his appearances, is affirming he is the truth. Let's keep reading the chapter. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, they haven't talked. Like, imagine that breakfast. Like, like uh, all you hear is, like, biting. <laughs> like, no one is saying anything. They're, they don't even know. Like, what do you say, right? Like, so, Jesus, what you been up to? Or, like, uh, how's it going? Like, what do you, how do you? How do you start a conversation? Like, they didn't know what to say. They're just stunned in silence. And they eat. And no one says anything for breakfast. But then, of course, Jesus speaks first. Can you imagine what Peter's been thinking? Because he remembers when he saw Jesus before he died, he denied Jesus. And now he's sitting here on the beach eating. I can't even imagine what Peter is thinking, how he's feeling. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, they're thinking, oh, here it comes. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. The same words that he said to him back in Matthew 4, on the same shore of Galilee, Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And now he's telling him again, come, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclined at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is that that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? He's talking about John, who wrote the Gospel of John. Peter says, well, hey, what about, what about John? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, I am John. I was there. I was the witness. I saw everything. And I have written this true testimony inspired by the Holy Spirit, firsthand account. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And this text just has absolutely awe-inspiring mercy and love and forgiveness from Jesus. After his profound failure, he comes face to face with Jesus and he encounters Jesus. And what we see in this text is that encountering Jesus is encountering restoration after failure. That is what you see here. So the theme from John 21 is that Jesus restores his people after failure. This is the overarching point of John 21. He is restoring what we have lost. Let's see how. Let me give you three specific ways that Jesus is restoring. One, after our failures, he's at work restoring our delight. So this is what we see first is after we fail, Jesus is at work restoring our delight. So Peter failed miserably. He denied knowing Jesus. Sin breaks relationship. That's what sin does. And if you don't think so, what happens when you husbands are foolish or offend your wife? And then she says, you're on the couch tonight. And then you feel like, oh, oh, yeah, I, that's right. Uh, I need to go apologize. I need to go reconcile the broken relationship because otherwise there's going to be distance between us because that's what sin does. It separates, it divides, it breaks relationship, it breaks intimacy. And so what was whole and good is now broken because of sin. That is the whole point of what sin does. And so here, Peter's sin has broken the relationship between him and Jesus. And Jesus wanted to mend that, to reconcile, to bring restoration, to bring them back together, to be close again. Have you ever experienced someone deeply hurts you or offends you or slanders or in some way just really wounds you? And then you try to talk to that person and they will deny anything wrong. 
They're like, well, that's on you. It's, you're, you have a weak skin, like thin skin. That's on you. Like, sorry. I just said the truth or whatever, but usually it's not. Or maybe they will acknowledge what they did, but they try to minimize it. Ever seen that one? Whether denying or, or minimizing or shifting the blame or making excuses for what happened and not actually confessing and owning to what their offense was? How does a relationship function when someone who has deeply hurt you refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing? Is it ever fully restored? No. It can't be. It's still separated. Until there's acknowledgement, until there's confession of the offense, there's always going to be a wall of separation between you. And so Jesus does not want Peter to have any distance from him. Peter and Jesus needed to be reconciled. And so for that to happen, Jesus needed to make sure that Peter would be honest about what he did. You don't see Jesus minimizing or denying, it's okay, Peter. No. What Peter did was evil. It was wrong. And Jesus is not excusing or, or, or minimizing what Peter did. Jesus wanted something real with Peter. And for that to happen, there had to be genuine restoration. He wanted to be real delight in Peter and no distance from Jesus. And why? Why is that? Because what is the source of joy? What is the source of delight? Well, Psalm 1611 tells us that in your presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so where is the only real source of lasting joy and pleasure and delight? In the presence of Jesus. He is the source of delight. And so if you're looking for it somewhere else, you won't find it. So Jesus was restoring Peter's soul back to Jesus, but in the process, he's restoring him to real delight. He wanted Peter to experience the love of Jesus again. You know, John wrote the Gospel of John. John also wrote Revelation. We did a series a few months ago in the first three chapters in Revelation. Chapter 2, there's a letter to the church in Ephesus, and it says that they abandoned their what? First love. Peter here had abandoned his first love. That's what you're seeing is going on here. And in John 13, you see Peter denying Jesus, standing in front of a, a what? Charcoal fire. And now Jesus sets up what? On the sea, on, on the shore of Galilee. A charcoal fire. You think that's by accident? You think that's just like a detail that was... Inadvertent. No. Jesus is recreating the circumstances where Peter denied Jesus. And then three times Peter denied Jesus. And so now three times Jesus asks Peter, do you 
love me. It is a picture of Jesus restoring Peter back to himself, back to delight in the presence of Jesus. But notice something with Peter's failure. Jesus does not ask him, Peter, have you read a lot of theology since you last sinned? Peter, have you gone to the synagogue and served really hard? Peter, have you given away a lot of money since you last denied me? Peter, have you been really extra religious to pay off your debt since you failed? Notice Jesus does not ask any of those questions. He asks Peter the heart of the matter. Do you Love me. Am I your greatest treasure? You see, because following Jesus is not about a religious structure. It is about a person to love. It's not about religion. It's not about the external behavior. It's about loving a person, loving the Son of God. You see, at its root, all sin is the same. Because at its essence, at its root, sin is when we love something else more than we love Jesus. And so in that moment, when, Jesus, when Peter was denying Jesus, what he was doing was he was loving his comfort, his security, his health, desiring those things more than he loved Jesus, to stand up for Jesus. And so when Jesus asks him, do you love me? He then asked a very important question. Do you love me more than these? Like that's actually kind of a really interesting question because Jesus doesn't say what these are. Like he, he doesn't. He says in verse 15, do you love me more than these? Well, it could mean do you love me more than like these men, these other six disciples that are here. Like, do you love me more than you love them? Or do you love me more than you love these fish that you just caught, which is a significant financial gain to catch that many fish? Like, do you love me more than, than the money that you're about to get from these fish that you just caught? Or, or do you love me more than these men love me? As in, do you have greater love for me than they do? I don't know. Because the text doesn't say, like it leaves it hanging. And the text doesn't define for us exactly what these Jesus is talking about. But as I poured over it this week, I don't think we need to make a distinction. I think it's all of these. I think it's all of them. I think he is telling Peter, you need to love me more than you love other people. So you need to have greater affections for me than other human beings. Like to love me more than your wife or your kids, love me more than other, other people. But I also think he means love me more than these possessions, love me more than a financial gain. So love me more than your career, love me more than your 401k, love me more than your comfortable vacations, love me more than your fat house, love me more than your savings account, love me more than your money or your possessions, love me more. But I think he also means you can actually love me 
more than these other men do because through my grace you can love me more than you ever even in your wildest dreams thought you could love me. Do you love me more than these? And I believe these is like all-encompassing more than anything else under the sun. Greatest treasure. And he gives the pathway. So if we're struggling with shame or regret, he describes a path for us to have delight restored. You know what that path is? I'll give you two words, confession and repentance. With no confession and no repentance, there is no restoration in your relationships or between you and God. Confession is when God's spirit opens our eyes and we recognize our sin. Like we see how we've been living. We acknowledge, we stop minimizing, we stop denying, we stop shifting the blame, we stop making excuses, and we just say, I was wrong. Wives, how many times do you hear your husband say, I was wrong? If I were to guess, not often enough. Because as men, it's really hard for us to just humble ourselves and acknowledge the truth that we were wrong. Confession is agreeing with God about what he says about our behavior or our attitudes or our words. That's confession. We admit it. And then we repent. Repent means to turn 180 degrees. It means you turn around and go the opposite direction that you were going. And so confession is when you agree with God. Repentance is the action that you take to then actually change and return back to your first love. Return back to God. And Peter knew this firsthand. How do I know? In Acts chapter 3, after he receives the Holy Spirit in full measure, he preaches the very first Christ-centered sermon. Now, lots of sermons before this were preached in the Old Testament, but this is the first sermon preached by someone who had seen Jesus resurrected, and now you have the very first, if you will, Christian Christ-centered sermon, and Peter proclaims it. And what does he say in Acts 3, 19 and 20? What is his message? Repent. He says, repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. He's like, repent, turn back to God that your sins would be forgiven. And he says, and here's why, that times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord come. And so what does he say? This St. Peter who tasted restoration understood the need to confess and to repent. And he says, if you will repent of your sin and return back to God, what you will have is his spirit brings refreshing. So repentance is not a bad thing. It is a necessary thing. It is the path towards having our delight in Christ restored. So is your soul dry today? Are you struggling with regret? Are you feeling the sting of your failure or your shame? You have to know that in your pain, Jesus meets you. 
there. He knows. And Jesus is breathing out joy and hope and restoration. Jesus died for this purpose. He died so that we could have our sins forgiven, nailed to the cross, so that we don't have to bear our shame or guilt any longer. And so in your failure, you have to know that Jesus loves you. And he genuinely likes you. This is why he died to set us free from our failures. And so what is the calling? Believe. Depend on him to trust in him and experience his delight being restored. I think sometimes in what we do when we've messed up really bad, we want to hold on to that shame and hold on to that regret. And you know why I think we do that sometimes? Because we feel like we're paying off our own sin. We did so much evil, or we messed up so bad, or we're so ashamed of who we've been, or what's been done to us, and we feel like if we let go of that shame, it's somehow minimizing what we did. Or we feel like if, if I stop feeling ashamed, then I'm not paying off my debt for the evil that I committed. And so we hold on to that shame. We hold on to that guilt. We hold on to that regret. And we keep reliving the evil that we committed. All I can tell you is look to the cross. And see mercy flowing out for you. You bear that shame no more. If you have Confess that sin. If you have taken steps of repentance, then brother, sister, lift your head up. And you press forward. And Jesus says, follow him. And you do not look back. You do not live and relive that shame. You let go. You leave it at the foot of the cross because Jesus there defeated it. Let go of that shame and that guilt. Receive his mercy and his forgiveness. Will you dare to believe that that failure is still under God's sovereign hand? That yes, you committed whatever it is that you did, and yet God allowed it and is using that for his glory. And there, there are circumstances in my life that I could share maybe over coffee, not, maybe not here, but where I have messed up so bad. And then I'll look back years later and realize I needed it. That was the path that God had for me. And there's this divine tension, this mystery of I'm accountable and yet God is sovereign. And both are true. Where he uses even our failures and brings good out of it to shape us and to make us who he wants us to be. If we will confess that sin and repent of it and receive his mercy. And so if you are a person who does not forgive very easily, 
If you're the kind of person that says, hey, you know what? If you hurt me, we're done. Like, I'll be friends with you, but you cross me, you, you, you hurt me, I'm done with you. You get one strike. If you're like that, if you have a heart that doesn't forgive and doesn't have mercy and doesn't love other people, then my question is, have you tasted of the mercy of God? Have you not drunk deeply of his grace? Because those of us that have drank from the living water and mercy, it ought to just flow out of us to be merciful, compassionate, loving, forgiving people that are not quick to judge, but are quick to think the best of others and quick to extend mercy because all of us are so desperate. We have a God who is at work in restoring our delight by restoring us back to him. But second, he also is restoring our duty. So this is an important thing. Like He restores our delight first, and then second, he restores our duty. Now, duty is not a bad word. Duty it can be a bad word. But when I'm talking about duty, what I mean is Jesus tells Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then as Jesus is restoring him, what does Jesus do? He gives him a command. He says, go do something. What does he tell him to do? First time, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Go do something. Tend my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. And so as he is restoring this relationship, as he's restoring this delight in Christ, he then is restoring his duty, his role in the kingdom. And so it's not as though Jesus saves us by our duty. Absolutely not. No one is saved by performance. No one is saved by doing. It was done by Jesus. He proclaimed it is finished. So we receive his salvation, we receive his restoration, but then we are sent out. We are commissioned. We're restored to work in the kingdom. We have a job to do, an assignment in the kingdom, a particular duty to fulfill in the kingdom. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us that he, God, gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So he is appointing, he is assigning people particular roles, functions, duties in the kingdom. And so first, sequence matters. He restores our delight in him, and then second, restores our duty, our function. Maybe you feel like you've messed up so bad that God cannot use you again in the kingdom. Maybe you feel like you've blown it. Or you feel like, man, I'm just washed up. I mean, maybe I can watch from the sideline. But God could never use me in a profound way in the kingdom. I have no more role or function He's taken it away. I've lost my calling because 
of what's happened or what I've done. Peter is living proof that those are lies from the enemy. That Jesus does restore and he restores us to our role in the kingdom. When when Jesus first called Peter in Matthew 4, he says, you will no longer be a fisherman. You will now be a fisher of men. You're now going to go fish for men. And then what happens here in John 21 when he's restoring Peter? What happens? He has this massive catch of fish, which is pointing to the fact that Peter will have great success as being a fisher of men. And you see that, read Acts, and you will see how God used Peter in a profound way in the kingdom. He uses our pain and even our failures. He restores us to shape our lives for ministry. Jesus did not die on the cross and then conquer the grave so that you can sit and watch. And this might sound harsh, but I'm just keeping it real. If if you want to just come and just sit in a seat in the Renewal Church worship gathering, you have missed the whole point of what we're about. I'm not saying don't come. I'm mostly not saying don't come. Like, I want you to hear the word. But, man, the point of this whole thing called Renewal Church is that you would come and be fueled on a Sunday so that you can then go and be released into the world and share your life with brothers and sisters and be discipled and disciple others who will disciple others who will disciple others until all nations will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. That is why we're here. We're here so that we're made new in Jesus, to then grow in Jesus, to then be released into the world for Jesus. This is our purpose statement. This is what we're about as a church. And so if you're here to just hear sermons, you're missing it. It's about sharing our lives and doing this thing together and serving in the kingdom and seeing lives like Peter's transformed by Jesus. And so we do fail. We all do. Jesus restores us. And in that restoring, he then sends us out. He commissions us to fulfill his purpose, our duty in the kingdom. Brother, sister, you are not defined by your failure. You are defined by who you are in Christ. You are defined by being redeemed, adopted, sent out, sealed by the Holy Spirit, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're defined by who we are in Christ. He restores first our delight Second, our duty. And lastly, he restores our direction. The direction that he wants us to follow in our lives. Verses 18, 19, we just read them. 
Jesus tells Peter that he's going to suffer and have his arms stretched, pointing to crucifixion. Peter was crucified. Church history tells us that he was crucified upside down. He did suffer for Jesus, but the text says that he suffered for Jesus to show the glory that would be displayed through his death. And notice Peter's life direction. Jesus never apologizes to Peter. Jesus never says, well, it's going to be tough. I'm really sorry, Peter, but if you don't mind, could you do this for me? Like, if it's okay with you, if, 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 you, don't, if you don't mind, could you suffer for me just, just a little? No apologies. Why? Because he had Jesus. What, what more could he offer? Himself, his presence, his spirit, an eternity in the presence of Jesus. Any suffering that we have for Jesus in this life is light and momentary affliction that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. But we're so wrapped up in our comfort, we miss it. We miss the direction that Jesus wants us to follow. And Peter says, hey, but what about John? Jesus says, eh, eh, eh. don't worry about John. You just follow me. You follow the path, the direction that I have for your life. I'm restoring your delight, your duty in the kingdom, and this is a direction that you now must take. And so Jesus is our everything. He is our hope. He is our first love. He is the bread of life. He is living water. He is the goal. He is our joy. He is our ambition. He's our aim. He's our purpose. He's our life. He is our everything. And if he's not that to you, then what you need is to take that fear, that shame, that rebellion, whatever you're struggling with, and recognize it has been nailed to the cross. And go walk in victory. Go walk in the light. He uses our hard circumstances to display his worth. When a world sees us suffering, it's still following Jesus. It shows that he is worth it. Yes, we'll lose our way sometimes. Yes, we can have hard seasons. But Jesus is stronger than our failures. No matter how deep your sin goes, his mercy still goes deeper. It's greater. His mercy truly is more. And I love how John ends because it began how it ends. So John begins with describing the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus. And then the book ends, this book ends with verse 25 with, again, the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus. It says, now there are also so many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written.
It's describing the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus throughout the whole gospel of John and his design for us to just fall in awe before him. He is worthy of your worship, worthy of your obedience, worthy of your everything. Earlier, when we began this sermon, I asked you if Jesus were standing right in front of you and looking into your eyes, what do you think Jesus would say to you? Some of you think that he would say, should have tried harder. You didn't do enough. You blew it. Who do you think you are? That's not what he would say. He would look at you in your eyes and he would say, I love you. That's what he would say to you. I love you. I died to have you here with me forever. He would look into your eyes, look right through you, and know you fully and completely, and simply say, I love you. Have you received his love? Because he loves you.